0: Contentment and confidence. Um, Have you ever had this experience? You look um, at a newborn baby that is fed, diapered, um, and asleep. And breathing like little babies do with complete contentment and safety. You know it's not going to last, but just contentment and think, wow, I wish I could have that kind of contentment and confidence that everything's in in control. And that really is the picture of what God says for us as little children to experience. I put a portion of our scripture from Philippians chapter 4 in your bulletin and up here. I want us to say this together. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Contentment and confidence. Say it again. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Contentment and confidence is what God desires for us to have. It's what He offers us. And yet, my observation is that we who call ourselves Christ followers struggle to have that contentment and confidence. And I think it's because it's a learned experience. To, uh, for, so for this baby in this mother's arms, it just is the way it is. But for us as children of God, we have to learn to be content and we have to learn to be confident. And it's a hard lesson. This is a poem that um, I've been familiar with for decades. And it came to me this week as I was taking a look at this. And it speaks to this idea of how do we gain contentment and confidence? When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man, that all the world shall be amazed. Watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks, when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out, God knows what he's about. The path to experiencing contentment and confidence is a hard path. Because we're born into this world with a sinful nature that is 180 degrees different from what God has in mind and what is required for us to experience contentment and confidence. We have to learn it. Contentment and confidence. For I've learned to be content. And it appears that this idea of contentment and confidence is where this book of Philippians has been headed all along. He hasn't addressed it as blatantly as he does now, but it's embedded in the first three chapters that we've been looking at. When he, when he says, um, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It would be better for me to go to heaven, but I, I, I know that I have to stay here. Now, all, all throughout this book so far, he's been talking about this goal of living with contentment and confidence, and now he talks about it blatantly. So let's take a look. Open your Bibles. To Philippians chapter four, and we'll be we'll be looking at some scriptures there. And open your bulletin to take some notes. Transformed minds are required, and transformed minds are learned. Um, Does anybody need a Bible? We've got some extra Bibles in the back. Just hold up your hand; somebody will deliver them. We need one up here. Anybody else up here? Several. They're coming. Transformed minds are required. Number one, Jesus' abundant life is contentment and confidence. John 10, I put the scripture in your outline. John 10, 10 and 11, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The enemy, the devil, comes only to steal, kill and destroy. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden when, when they ate the forbidden fruit, when they disobeyed God and turned it, everything turned upside down. And that's what he continues to do. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Everything that God wants to do that's good, he wants to do the opposite. He says, I came, Jesus, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. At the cross, he provided the way for us to have life. At the resurrection, he created us the ability to have it abundantly. And then he gives the picture. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus presents the two options. You can either continue to live according to the sinful nature and you will experience destruction, death, steal, kill, and destroy. Or you can experience abundant life. And the picture of abundant life is of this good shepherd with his sheep, providing contentment to the sheep so that they have all that they need And confidence that the shepherd really is in control. But they have to learn that. It's not automatic. And then let's look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. So the Apostle Paul has been talking, we're going to come back to earlier verses in chapter 4 in a moment. He's been talking about what we need to do in order to live this life in alignment with him. And then he says in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned. And if you're in the habit of circling words in your Bible, I would circle that one. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I've learned it. I know how. How does he know it? Because he's learned the lessons to be brought low. I know how to abound, to have a lot. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I've learned to be content. I can do all things through him who gives me, who strengthens me. I have confidence. And so I put um, those words in your outline there. So to be content is to be satisfied with what one has through Christ. It's to be satisfied. To be to, as Paul describes it here, is whether I have a lot. I'm content in Christ because He's my good shepherd. He's in control. I know He's providing for me. I don't have to worry. He's protecting me. I can be content with a little. I can be content with a lot. I've learned that. And so it's to be satisfied. The sheep learn from the shepherd how to be content. But sometimes they see greener pasture over there and they start to wander off and the shepherd has to hook them and bring them back. Hook them and bring them back. Hook them and bring them back. Because being content is a learned behavior. And then to be confident is that is to be secure in the ability to handle anything through Christ. No matter what comes. The sheep learn from the shepherd that the shepherd's in control. The wolf's attacking, the shepherd's going to take care of it. It doesn't look like we have enough water to drink, the shepherd's going to find it. Confident that no matter what comes, It's not about me. It's not my ability, but it's Christ in me, no matter what I face. So Jesus' abundant life is contentment and confidence. But my observation is in an affluent society, rather than being more content, people who call themselves Christians tend to be less content. So let's do a little evaluation here on your paper there On a scale of 1 to 8.3, 1 being I'm not content at all, 8.3 being I'm absolutely content, where are you? On a scale of 1 to 7.8, 1 being not confident at all, 7.8 being absolutely confident, where are you? And this is not about judging you for being less than 7.8 or 8.3. This is about, just about recognizing where we are because it's a learned behavior. It's not something that we automatically experience. So keep your finger in Philippians chapter 4 and turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Because this abundant life is what Jesus wants us to experience... And if we're not experiencing contentment and confidence in this life, then we're experiencing less than he offers, and we will get sucked in by the devil into trying to find contentment other places and find confidence other places. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning of verse 6, says, but godliness, that is being in the image of Christ, living in alignment with him, with contentment, being satisfied with what God provides, is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we, could take, we cannot take anything out of the world amen when you're laying in that casket it's not going with you it's going in the ground but if we have food and clothing with this we will be content really that's all we need. I think I need to move my score a little bit farther back from 8.3. But those who desire to be rich have more than they really need. Fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You see what he's saying here? If, if we allow ourselves to be discontent... It will cause us to pursue other things other than Jesus. And as a result, we will get sucked into the stealing, killing, and destroying that the devil does. Contentment's a big deal. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Contentment is... And confidence is God's desire for us, but it's a learned behavior as we follow the shepherd. Now, here's the problem we want a pill when God uses a process. (laughs) That's our modern culture, right? We want instantaneous. And we've been lured into thinking that everything ought to be quicker than it is, right? So we got microwaves, we got Instapots, we got you know, ready-to-go meals. We got, um, you know, if I have a pain, take a pill. I don't want the process. You know, if the doctor says, here, you can either take this pill or I'll give you this workout regimen that will take 13 weeks, but you'll be healthy. Which one is more appealing? Right? It's the pill, right? I just want, I want the pain to go away. I don't necessarily want to be healthy. That's our attitude. We've got to shift that because God says, I want you to be content. I want you to have confidence in this life. I long for it. That's what Jesus died for. But you have to do the work. You have to let me take you through this process. And it's a long, hard process because we came into this world with a sinful nature which puts us upside down. And to shift that takes this training that the New Testament talks about. I have a difficult time changing the way, the direction I pull out of my driveway. (laughs) So most of the time I'm coming out of my driveway and I back to the right. And then I go this direction because that's the direction I most always go. And I find myself when I'm supposed, I've got a different errand to do. I'll be back in my driveway and I still, well, I want to go that way. So I got to decide, am I going to just back down the hill until I get to the stop sign? Or am I going to turn back in my driveway? If it takes me, if it's that difficult to change that kind of habit, how much more difficult is it for God to change, transform us to have the mind and the heart of Jesus? And that's why Jesus says, The gate is narrow and the way is hard and few will find it. Most people will never discover true contentment and true confidence in Christ because we want a pill when God offers us a process. Number two, contentment and confidence result from a mind transformed. So there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians that are discontent. You know how, uh, you know if you're discontent, is because you complain. <laughs> right? Yep. That, that's the barometer. I mean, that's the indication. So if you find yourself complaining about things, you're discontent. You are not content. F- and fearful. Fear is the devil's primary weapon. And we'll talk about what God does with that. They're full of angst, they're full of anxiety, and that's not God's design. Um, Sheep don't automatically live content. They learn contentment by the shepherd's discipline. They don't automatically live confident in the shepherd. They learn it by experiencing the provision and the protection of the shepherd. And so in in, uh, Philippians chapter uh, 4, you still have your finger there, What we find is verses 8 and 9 is like the crescendo or the summit of what he's been talking about and what we've been studying over the past, I don't know, five or six weeks in chapter 4. So far, he said, stand firm. Stand firm. Stand stand firm. It's an I. I don't know. Stand (laughs) firm. Verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crying, stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm persevere, endure, don't give up, just keep putting one foot in front of the other as you follow Christ. Amen. Verse 2, live in unity. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntiki, to agree in the Lord. Two people who weren't getting along, he says, deal with the conflict and get along, live in unity. Verse 3, help others when they're having struggles in relationships. Verse 4, delight in Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's what Saul or Paul and, and Silas were doing in that Philippian jail that we talked with the kids about. They were beaten, bruised, mistreated, uh, unjustly thrown into prison for doing something good. And at midnight, what did they do? They praised God. Why? They were rejoicing in the Lord. They knew he was in control. They were living confident in what God was all about and content. Whether they would live or die, whatever was happening. And then verse 5, shine His presence. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And then we talked about, I think last week we talked about uh, trust instead of worry. No, several weeks ago. Do not be anxious about anything, verse 6, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Instead of being anxious, take it to the Lord. Contentment. Instead of being anxious and worrying about things, take it to Jesus. Being confident that he's in charge. Trust over worry. And then he reaches this grand crescendo. Finally, in verse 8, finally, brothers. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, what's the next word? Think. Think. Put your minds on that. And each one of those characteristics is a description of who God is. Put your mind on Christ. So here's a little exercise. In fact, this is homework. Sorry, Bev. (laughs) Keep track of the available time that you have. Not, Not when you have to be working, when you have to be doing something else, when you're doing chores. But the available time that you have and identify where your mind goes. Because in order to get to contentment and confidence, our mind has to have a trajectory that goes to God. Goes to God. Goes to God. That's what we we strive to learn through the fasting prayer. Going to God. Going to God. Think about these things. And then in verse 9, he says, put it into practice. Whatever you learned, received, heard, and seen. You see how it's a learned behavior? It's a training program. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. And we're going to come back to that some more next week. For this week, understand it's a big deal. Transformation of our minds is a big deal to God. Because the transformation of our mind, uh, the renewing of our minds causes the transformation of our whole being. Mm -hmm. And our minds are upside down. We are born with a sinful nature and we don't think that way. There's no possibility of pleasing God or experiencing the abundant life if our minds are stuck on earthly things. Many who claim to follow Christ are living with childlike thinking instead of childlike trust. You might want to write that one down because that one is one that God gave me this week. Because he says we need to be like a child childlike trust, following the good shepherd. But we can't be childlike in our thinking. He says that in that area we have to grow up. And too many Christians are still superficial in their thinking. And our, our culture of affluence and ease doesn't help anything because it makes it easy not to think about the hard stuff. Too many of us are guilty of stinking thinking. And if you're from Toledo, that's the way they say it. Stinking thinking. If you're from Springfield, Ohio, down where hillbilly land is, it's known as stinking thinking. So you can choose whichever one you want. Stinking thinking is when we're thinking about earthly things. Open your Bible so keep your, um, open your Bible to Romans. We're going to look at several scriptures there. Romans chapter eight, beginning with verse five. The transformation of our minds is a big deal to God. It's a primary activity for those who are serious about following Christ. So here he talks about stinking thinking and fragrant thinking. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 5, he says, For those who live according to the flesh, human desires, earthly things, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. So here, this is not Um, just having a daily quiet time or saying prayer before meals. This is about the lifestyle of getting the trajectory of your mind so that your default is when your mind's not preoccupied with something else, it goes to the things of God rather than the things of this earth. Mm -hmm. That's a training. That's training. That's a process. He says, here's how serious it is. For To set the mind on the flesh is death. If we're, if we're preoccupied with the things of this world, it doesn't matter whether you claim to be following Christ or not. Your trajectory is to follow the, the ways opposite of God. And what did he say? The, the uh, thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's the thinking. That's the stinking thinking. The rotting thinking. But to set the mind, um, But to set the mind on the Spirit is life. It brings life, it brings abundant life, contentment and confidence in God and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. If our thinking is about the things of this world but, we, but Pastor Herb, you know, I, I go to church once a week and I read my Bible and I give some money. And No! that's not. He's talking about trans, being transformed into the image of Christ. He's not talking about activities that are religious. It says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's not just that we're not doing good enough. It's we're enemies with God because we're 180 degrees opposite. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. In other words, so when we, re- we learn that we're supposed to change, that's God's law. He tells us what we're supposed to be doing. And we say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's stinking thinking. That's my mind's on the earth. Why? I I want what I want. I'm not going to choose God because I'm hostile to God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Until we are in the process seriously pursuing, being transformed by the renewal of our minds, we cannot please God. And And thus we will not be content and we will not have the confidence that God is in control. And we'll be running after all kinds of things. Now flip over a couple of pages to Romans chapter 12. Beginning with verse 1. Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The body represents the whole self. So he's saying, give yourself completely to God as a living sacrifice, holy to him, completely to him, holding nothing back, absolutely surrendered to him. Do not be conformed to this world. And so verse 1 says, here's what you're supposed to do. Verse 2 says, here's how to do it. Do not be conformed to this world. Romans chapter 8, thinking about fleshly things, thinking about earthly things. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, the renewal of our minds, the transformation of our beings is a big deal to God. Because that's what it means to be following Him. Renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. So by, as our minds are transformed so that we're thinking from where God sits, seeing through His eyes, His thoughts and His ways, then then we understand what God is all about and we can trust the Good Shepherd and have contentment and confidence in every part of our lives. We cannot be in step with God without being transformed. Listen to me. In what we love, in what we think, which will lead to how we feel and cause us to see through His eyes. So how do we develop this way of thinking? Well, for $39.99, you can buy a bottle of pills that I've got in the back. Just take one a day and you can be transformed. (laughs) We think we would like it to be that easy, but God knows best. Here's the deal. We want a pill. God has a process. Number three, a transformed mind comes through God's difficult experiences. Pastor Herb, why can't you just preach easy stuff? (laughs) Really? You got to talk about this? It's the only way. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, you do have a choice. You can live discontented and fearful and do whatever you want. But if you want The contentment that is beyond comprehension in this earthly realm, the contentment that says, I I I can whatever happens, God is in control and I can trust him and I can be content. I don't I can just be content because Jesus is, is my Lord and Master and God is my Father and and everything that we sang about in the goodness of God. And I can be confident if I'm willing to follow this process. Mm -hmm. Trust and obey is our responsibility. That's it. Trust and obey. Sounds simple. It's the hardest thing you will ever do. Mm -hmm. And it gets harder the longer you follow it. (laughs) But as somebody that I once heard said, hard is not bad. Hard is just hard. And God uses hard. Transformation is God's responsibility. Transformed thinking comes through God's, through the experiences that God puts us through as we trust and obey. That's transformation. In our culture, in our, um, the way we teach pretty much everything in our culture, except for some of the the manual labor stuff and the apprenticeships and stuff that they have where it's on-the-job training, most of our educational system is we give students a book to read and we give them information and we test them on that information and then we act as if now they know it. They don't know it. They just cram so that they would pass the test. I know that's the way I did it. I remember I went through Bible college I graduated cum laude with a dual degree in pastoral ministry and Bible. And then I went to Nantiglo, Pennsylvania. Anybody know where Nantiglo? Nantiglo is like, just keep driving until you get to the end of the earth and then sail a little bit farther and that's where it is. Just this little tiny town with this small congregation. And and I, I did an internship at a church in Wichita, Kansas. I'd spend a year on the road in the singing groups and talking to pastors. I, All of the, And then I get to Nanny Glow and I, I remember standing in front of the mirror in the bathroom after I'd been there about three days saying, what are you doing? I, And that was a sincere question, Herb. What in the, what were you thinking? Accepting being a pastor, you don't know anything about being a pastor except by the books. Never had that experience. And that's how we generally think of becoming a disciple. We think if we read enough of the Bible, then we'll know it. And then we'll know how to do it. And what I've learned increasingly over the last three to five years is God's training program is much different than that. We are transformed when God puts us or allows us in difficult situations that uh, cause us to be at the end of ourselves and we just have to trust and obey. It's the way he's always worked. He even did it. With, the father even did that with Jesus. Jesus, thirty years old, he's grown up, sinless. You'd think he'd be ready. What did God do? Baptized, and immediately the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Forty days of fasting, doing battle with the devil. And and the scripture tells us, the gospels tell us, he emerged from the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, it refers to that. And he says, Jesus learned obedience by what he suffered. And so he emerged ready to bring the kingdom of God because of the hard experience in the wilderness as he trusted and obeyed. Now, if Jesus, the sinless Son of God, needed 40 days of fasting in the desert in order to be ready, what in the world do we need? The same kind of thing. Hard situations when, when we have to trust and obey. That's his, per, that's his training program. Now, understand, the Bible, learning the Bible is absolutely essential because it gives us the foundation of what we need to do. It gives us an understanding of what God is up to and how to trust Him and how to obey Him. But it's only the preparation. It's not the implementation. So let's talk about it. This thought came to me. Is it possible that we resist most that which we need to embrace most in difficult circumstances in order to be transformed? Because our prayer generally is when things go When things are hard, God, deliver me. Get me out of this. Take this away. And I'm I'm trying to learn to pray a different prayer. God, what are you doing? What are you seeing in this? And how do I need to trust you in this? That's a different kind of prayer. We don't. Boy, there's so much we can talk about, and, and we will as we go forward in the next few weeks. A transformed mind comes only as we go through difficult experiences with God, trusting and obeying. Because we don't know that the Good Shepherd will provide for us until we come to the place where we need provision and He delivers. That sheep doesn't know that the Good Shepherd will always have water until he gets thirsty. And he has to turn to the shepherd and wait for the shepherd to lead them to still waters. Trust and obey is our responsibility. We don't know that Jesus is big enough to provide contentment and confidence until we face situations that rob us of those two things. And then we go to him and then he provides it. John 16, 33. I've said these things to you, Jesus says, that in me you may have peace. I, and so he's been teaching, teaching, teaching. I've said all of these things to you so that in me you can have peace. Um, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. And, and for a long time, I took that as, okay, that's just, you know, the way it is. Um, you're going to have to put up with this. It's just, and now I understand this. No, the tribulation, God allows so that you know and experience that I give peace. And that you know that I've overcome the world. You don't know that I've overcome the world. You don't experience that I've overcome the world until you're facing a situation when you think you're going to die and then he overcomes it. Does that make sense? Take heart. I've overcome the world. Romans chapter 5. Hopefully you still have your, your Bible open to Romans. Romans chapter 5. You see, so many scriptures in the Bible only make sense when you look at it through this lens. Yeah. You know, because otherwise you're going, ah, I kind of no joy when you suffer. Come on, really? Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. That only makes sense if you understand on the other side of suffering is the God who is bigger. You can know that, but it, you don't ex- without experiencing it, it doesn't transform you. You can think that it's true, but until you go through it, you don't know that it's true. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. It develops me. And endurance produces character. It, and character, it's talking about the... the character of Christ, who Jesus is. It develops us into being like Jesus, and character produces hope that is the confident assurance that God really is in control. It's not wishing. Hope is the confident assurance that God is in control. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit who has been given to us. Hope does not disappoint us. The confident assurance that God is in control does not disappoint us because the love of God is poured into our hearts. In other words, it is hope that leads to God's love in our hearts, confidence and contentment. Because the lid has been removed by our cooperation. Let me say it a different way until you embrace sufferings rejoice in the sufferings so that you experience endurance and you, and you develop the character of Christ and you experience his hope you have put a lid on God's ability to give you confidence and contentment mm-hmm. but if you but if you rejoice in those sufferings embrace those hard things trust and obey saying God I surrender to you we sing consecration Take my everything. I give it to you. Do whatever you want, and He develops that in us, so that He so we do endure by the skin of our teeth. We trust and obey, and then He molds us more in the character, and then we experience this hope that gives contentment and confidence. It's the only, are you starting to get it? The difficult situations are not the problem. God has to use difficult situations because, because Adam and Eve disobeyed and turned everything upside down. He has to pull us back to who he is. And the only way to do that is through the hard stuff that is in our lives. Job is one of those people. And I believe he was a real person. Some people think it's just a story. I believe he's a real person and that um, he is an example of, of exactly what we're talking about. So, um, I think I did an eight week series on Job. You did. A few years back. I think. But instead we're going to take uh, seven <laughs> minutes. Here's the short story. Job was the most righteous man on the face of the earth. The most righteous man on the face of the earth. Divine councils meeting. All the supernatural beings are there. And the Satan figure, the Satan person, points them out and says, oh yeah, look at you. Um, you know, and, and they have a conversation and God says, okay, I'll give you permission. You can, um, you can persecute him. And so Satan does. God allows it. God allows it. Not for the purpose that Satan thought, because Satan thought he could destroy him and bring dishonor to God. But for the purpose of the development of Job and the honor and the glory of God in the earthly realm and the heavenly realm. And is it, it is possible that in your life God wants to do the exact same thing. Amen. That it's not about you, that it's about developing you, using you in the lives of other people, and bringing honor to God in ways that you can't even imagine. That's why we can't complain. That's why we have to lean in. So there's Job. He's sitting on an ash heap, scraping boils off of his arms. And a couple of of scriptures. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He worshipped. Instead of God, why me? Why me? Why does this have to happen to me? Can't, please take it away. He just praise God. Trust and obey. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Does that sound like a song we just sang? <laughs> Blessed be the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. I will trust you, God. I will trust you. As I go through this, and we can't even imagine the pain he went through. We can't even fathom it. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Next chapter, his wife says, why are you still holding on to your faith? Just curse God and die. He goes, you're a crazy woman. Can't you see the hand of God? And then he has friends who come to him and, and um, you know, they, they give him all kinds of bad information, accusing him. So he's, he's hurting physically. He's lost everything, including his kids and he's, he's in pain. And, and then in chapter 13, his response to one of his compatriots was, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. I'll still talk to him. I'll, I'll still make my debate. I'll still talk to him. But it did not matter, even if he kills me. And that's the attitude of trust and obey. When we face difficult situations it's because God wants to develop us into the image of Christ, transform our thinking, transform our living so that we experience His contentment and His confidence and, and even the angels and demons see the honor and the glory of God because He is enough. Yes. And that's the process. That's the only way we get there. Finally his friends shut up and God shows up. And I love Job chapter 38 through 42. Because God shows up. Now remember back in chapter 1, the most righteous man on the face of the earth. Chapter 38, God shows up out of the whirlwind and begins to talk to Job and tell him who he is. And, And he goes through this litany of Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I created? Where were you? (laughs) And Job is is realizing that he's got some pride that he didn't even know. Listen to me, friends. There are times when things go wrong in our lives because God's getting at stuff that we don't even know is there. And no matter how much we try to trust and obey and say, God, I surrender all this, he can't get at it until we go through difficult times and he pulls the curtain back and we see. And Job finally re- recognizes it. And, and so God goes on that way for a couple of chapters and then Job finally says, oh, I had no idea. I shouldn't open my mouth. I had no idea what I was talking about. There's enough. And God goes, dress like a man. And he goes after him again. <laughs> and I'm going, seriously, God, this is the most righteous man on earth. It's not because God's being cruel. It's because God is getting at stuff that he's going to free Job of so he can experience a deeper contentment and confidence than he's ever experienced before. Chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then, he, and then he quotes a question that God had asked him. Who is this that, that hides counsel without knowledge? A question that God had asked Job. Therefore, I have uttered things that I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will, and, and again, he quotes God. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then he says, I heard, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I knew about you. But after going through all of that, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself. I humble myself and repent in dust and ashes. He says, I knew about you, but I didn't know you. I didn't experience you until I went through all of this pain. I trusted and obeyed. You showed up and made me more into the image of Christ. That's God's process. That's what God offers every single one of us. It is the hardest thing we will ever do. But it's worth It's worth it. Being transformed into the likeness of Christ, developing the mind of Christ, so that we are seeing as He says and sees and living as He would live is the hardest thing, but the best thing and it will lead us to that contentment and confidence. You're either just coming out of some stuff that has been hard, You're in the middle of stuff that's hard or you're heading into stuff that's hard. It's an opportunity that God is inviting you into because he's trying to mold you and make you to experience a deeper contentment and confidence than you've ever experienced before. See if this poem doesn't have more depth now that we've talked about the message. And put yourself in the middle of it. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed. Watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts besieging hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses, and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out on that person. God knows what he's about. And God knows what he's about in your life. As you go through difficult things, it's his process. Trust cooperate and obey. And don't do it alone. That's why He gave us one another. Would you bow your heads? Lord, we give you praise because you are Almighty God. And though there are so many things that we don't understand about how you do, what you do, and what you allow, and how you work, we know that you are Almighty God, who loves us beyond comprehension. And so for each one of these people, I put them into your hands and ask that you would do whatever you need to do to draw them to yourself, to experience that contentment and confidence that comes as they trust and obey. Just trust and obey. Teach us how to do that and show us how to encourage one another to experience it. Lord, help us to lock arms with one another and shoulder to shoulder march through the hard stuff. Transform us, Lord. Don't let us off the hook. Pursue us as you did Job and Paul and all those people that we know in the Bible. That you can receive honor and glory as you mold us into your image. And as we experience that contentment and confidence that makes life so valuable. We give ourselves to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.